This message by Sam Shin, entitled "Sent Together: Discipleship Groups," was recorded at Wellspring Church on September 8, 2019. The text for this message is Romans chapter 10, verses 13 through 15. Romans chapter 10, 13 through 15, which reads, "Everyone who calls upon the Lord, the name of the Lord, will be saved." How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, "How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news!" You may be seated. This is the reading of God's word. So for this month, we are going to go through a series before First John. We're going to cover First John after this, but we're going to go through a series on our journey together. And this is something that we will be doing every year in September, because really it's about emphasizing our life together as believers of Christ, and specifically, how do we do that? And so for this day, we're going to talk about discipleship groups. Why that's so significant for us? Perhaps many of you do not know this. I, if you do not, it, it saddens me because we don't say it enough. But the real question is, why does our church exist? Who are we, and what should we about? What we, what should we be about? The answer to that question is that Wellspring exists to make disciples of Jesus through the gospel. I mean, that's our vision. That's Why we are together? We exist to make disciples of Jesus.、Um, it's it's that simple, and it's not cutting edge. That's not radical. It's very straightforward, simple, and from the Bible. In Matthew chapter twenty-eight, verse nineteen, Jesus told his disciples, "Go therefore and make disciples of all nations." And so, if we want to be followers of Jesus, we can't. Simply decide, I'm not going to do that because it's too taxing, or time-consuming, or difficult, or inconvenient. And we definitely can't say to Jesus, "Jesus, you don't know how hard it is to disciple these people." Remember who Jesus' disciples were. One person denied him three times at his greatest hour of need. Who was also very arrogant and always putting his foot in his mouth. And then you have a guy who betrayed him at the end, selling him for essentially trinkets, thirty pieces of silver, which was not much at all. You have James and John right in front of Jesus, arguing over who is the greatest between the two of them. So certainly Jesus had his work cut out for him when he chose these men to disciple. And so at the very least. It's difficult for us to say, "Well, Jesus, you know, when I think about the people in my discipleship group, they're so difficult. They they will never change." We just can't say that to him, and we can't say that we don't have to really do this because, as Matthew twenty-eight tells us, this is a command. So to follow Jesus is to be a disciple of Jesus. To to disciple means one who is sent. And so it's someone who follows Jesus and someone who is sent by Jesus, and both are concurrent. And so this month again is this focus, and I want to 
look at Romans 10 through 13 through 15 to describe very specifically as disciples of Christ, what must we remember? We need to remember three things essentially. We need to remember that we are called. We need to remember that we believe. We need to remember that we disciple. So first, let's look at we are called. And that's the premise upon which everyone follows Christ, is that we are a called people. Paul writes in verses 13 through 14, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? Verse 13 is a quote from Joel chapter 2, verse 32. And the word call both in Joel and throughout the Old Testament, is always referring to someone who's calling out to God, who's crying out, who is in such desperate need that they actually literally shout out to God. They're they're asking for his help. And in view of the fact that God is powerful, he's holy, he's majestic, the natural response of looking at someone that high is when you're in need is to actually believe this person can save you and can help you. It's a a call out to God because we need him. We desire him and there's danger afoot. And so therefore we call out to him. It's the very reason why in verse 14, Paul describes the Christian this way. The Christian calls on him. You know, it could have, Paul could have described this very differently, but he describes it as this is the heart of the Christian, the heart of the Old Testament call of recognizing that Christians do not look upon God as just some being who gives gifts. Here's the answers to our prayers. But at the core of their being, they need him. They desire him. He is our father. I've uh, given this illustration before, but I, I just feel like it fits really well here is that um, my sister and I, when we were young, we were at a, a mall. It was, I think it was Sears, actually. It's not too many Sears around anymore. But we were watching the Jetsons on television. You know, there was a whole row of old wooden televisions <laughs> and uh, big CRTs. And, and back then, there was no TV on demand. What you got was whatever was on air and happened to be my favorite cartoon. And so my sister and I were mesmerized watching TV. And my parents said, don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Always dangerous words by a parent. So we just stood there watching. But the thing about television back then is there were commercials. And so commercials always broke the hypnotic spell over children. So we're watching the Jets and suddenly commercial comes and it ends. And when my parents said, we'll be right back, it was one of those, yes, yes, okay, but really you're not listening at all. You're just watching the television screen. And suddenly, once the commercial hits, we just start looking around saying, where'd they go? Mommy, daddy. And suddenly I remember holding her hand, we're crying looking around, walking, and as as it was, they were probably very close to us, but we just started roaming around the store. And we're calling out and crying out to them, panicked. We eventually get taken to security, and where they asked us, what are your parents' names? And it was, Mommy, Daddy. I, I, who, wh- <laughs> I did not know my parents' names. And so 
they, you know, they said it over the loudspeaker. If you've lost your children, please come to the security. But the thing is that, you know, the Jetsons, awesome cartoon. It's great until you lose your parents, you know, until they're gone. And when you realize that that which is greater is no longer there, your heart sinks. You have to find that which is greater, that which is more lovely, that which you delight in. And for a little child, ultimately as their parents, whether they realize it or not, and I'm sure some of you are thinking, I wish that were true. I wish they would show us. But if you lose them, you will see it. The calling out, the crying out, is recognizing what is ultimate in your life. It's what you get when there's danger when you realize there's desperation. And that's what defines a Christian ultimately, is what is your greatest delight and desire? And sometimes we don't see that until all sorts of trials come our way. Dangers come. There's desperation. James Boyce, he's a pastor. He had, um, he's a pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. He wrote this, It is not enough for you to sit under the preaching of the Word of God to be a Christian. As important as that is, it is not enough for you to know theology or even to be a student of the Bible. I commend all those things to you, but they alone do not make you a Christian. To be a Christian, you must call on the Lord Jesus Christ personally, saying, Lord Jesus Christ, I confess that I am a sinner. I cannot save myself. I call on you to save me. Help me. Save me from my sin. If you will do that and really mean it, Jesus will save you. In fact, he already has because it is his work in you that leads to that confession. See, it is not enough for you to just simply sit under the preaching of God's word or to go to church or to do ministry, whatever it is. There actually has to be a confession of a need for Christ. There actually has to be a calling out to say, help me, save me. Until you really understand that, you should really question, do I believe in him? Do I trust him? Do I know him? Am I, am I truly saved? That's Paul's point here is that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But that calling often comes at our most desperate hour. And that's when we understand that that call then leads to what Paul really alludes to is a biblical progression because it goes from calling to belief. And that's sort of the second part in verse 14. We believe. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? Intellectual belief does not save you. You can read the Bible. You can have quiet times and devotionals every day. You can be in a discipleship group or a Bible study, hear it over and over, and yet it still doesn't sink into your heart. I need him. It's just something that you believe intellectually. You might not even think that you only believe it intellectually. You might say, I am a Christian, but truly, deep in your heart, there isn't a trust in Christ. It is an intellectual belief. But at the same time, there also must be intellectual belief. That God doesn't bypass your mind. He doesn't decide, okay, I'm only going to make you emotional for me, but I'm not going to help you to understand me. That both are concurrent in faith. 
And we need both to understand and to believe and to know and to trust who he is. To put Paul's words in a positive way, those who call on the Lord believe in him. They know him. They delight in his word. They want to get to know him intellectually, philosophically, that it matters. There's even a perhaps a wrestling with belief. One of the most interesting test cases of this wrestling with belief while believing is in Mark chapter 9, verse 24. There's a man, a father, whose son has an unclean spirit or is demon-possessed. And he goes to his Jesus' disciples and says, can you cast out these demons? And they go and they pray over him and these demons are not cast out. And so this man finds Jesus and then in Mark 9, 24 it says, uh, Jesus cries out. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Because the disciples could not cast out the demon. And so this desperate father brings the boy to Jesus. I mean, think about that concept. I believe, help my unbelief. You might think of that as sort of a, you know, a conundrum. How do you believe but not believe? And if you have been walking with the Lord for a while, you understand this father a little bit. Actually, probably a lot. You understand that you can actually believe in Christ, but there is still this battle ongoing daily, moment by moment. We understand the circumstances that come that are constantly sort of storming against our faith. And for this man, he saw belief in Jesus as his only hope. But there is wrestling. Christians wrestle with God. But ultimately, Christians believe. So there's the foundation of faith, and yet there's still the wrestling with faith. We wrestle, but we believe. We weep, but we believe. We mourn, but we believe. We grieve, but we believe. We're persecuted, but we believe. We doubt, but we believe. Because we are called upon. And we call on him. And all of that happens all concurrently, all at the same time. We are a people, and God knows us. There's a complexity of emotions, thoughts, um, fears, concerns, and all of that sway in our lives. And then there's a, a boatload of circumstances that just come and hit us in all sorts of fashions and forms, some small, some great, all of them leading us to perhaps a point of discomfort at the very least or fear at worst. Even in the midst of that, though, we believe. And what do we believe? We believe what we have heard. And what we believe when we hear is we hear God's word. God's word, the Bible, is central to our belief. And without belief, you will not call on him. And so this is why it is so important, one, you go to a church that actually teaches God's word. You should leave from every Sunday saying, I learned about Something of God's word that I did not know or it reinforced something that I know. And if you've ever go to the next place or the next church or a new location, do not settle simply for your emotions being tickled or for a bunch of humorous stories to make you feel good about yourself. That's not good enough. And it will never 
cause you to actually call out to God. I say that to all of our college students who go away, to those who are transitioning. It's always look for a place where you know that the centrality of God's word is so deeply embedded into the DNA of the church that you'll never fear that you're not being deeply impacted by what God believes and who he is and who Christ is. Without God's word, we cannot believe. That's the point of Paul's sort of natural progression here is we will not believe. We will succumb to every temptation. We will succumb to every uh, temptation to lash out in anger, lust, vengeance, fighting for our rights without considering a savior. I'm more convinced than ever before that without a regular, every day going to God's word and meditating on it, praying through it, reading it, memorizing it, speaking to it amongst others, teaching others on God's word, discipling others through God's word, we will default back to what our sinful state is, which is Judges describes it this way. We all do what is right in our own eyes. The Bible essentially is truly true north for us. It shows us what is our natural Godward default state. God's word does that. And apart from the Bible, we will always go back to what I think is right for me. Idolatry, self-worship. A, a text that really points this out to me so clearly is Psalm 71, 14 through 16, where the psalmist says, but I will hope continually and will praise you yet more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation all the day, for their number is past my knowledge. With the mighty deeds of the Lord, I will come. I will remind them of your righteousness, yours alone. When you look at that psalm, what I see in that is, especially that middle part, my mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation all the day. The way you are able to tell of that and follow and praise and know who he is, is you actually have to know the deeds of God's salvation all the day, every moment, every day. That if we're not regularly infused with God's word that tells of, this is how God saves his people, me, you. This is the help that I need in my life. Without that, we cannot know who God is. We just can't. Psalm 71 says we need to tell also of God's salvation all the day. Not just know it personally, but you need to actually share it with people. It's the lack of our sharing of that knowledge with others in all sorts of conversations. Whether you're having a dinner with friends and intermingled with talking about different restaurants that you eat at or the, the latest, greatest sports teams or, you know, what current society is like. There has to be intermingled with that a natural outflow of this is what God is doing in my life today. This is how it's impacting me and it's actually causing me to have even greater joy for the way that I live and the way that I think. It's transforming my heart, my mind for people, my children, my wife, my husband, my parents. If that's not a regular flow of your life, probably it's because it's not starting with you and God himself. So Paul says, 
so clearly to us, we call on Him. When you need Him, you turn to Him, just like a child who is lost would turn to their parent and call out, Mom, Dad. So too, our natural instinct as a Christian is to call out to God. To say, I need you. But you don't actually get to that place unless you believe Him. And you don't believe Him without His Word. Without hearing from Him. And we hear from Him primarily through His Word. But if you get all of that, then here's what should happen as the final outflow of that in verse 15. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. I want to link this to Jesus' own words in Matthew 28, 19. That the call and the command of the Christian, according to Jesus, is go and make disciples. And when he says all nations, it's full. So discipleship, first of all, is a command. It is something that Paul makes so inescapable in his logic. Have you called out to Jesus? If yes, then you're saved. Have you been saved? If yes, then you believe. Do you believe? It's because someone told you God's word. Someone preached to you. Someone proclaimed Christ to you. Someone discipled you. And if you've been discipled, then you are sent to also do the same. You're called to disciple others. That's Paul's logic here in Romans 10. We can't just simply say, I believe, I know, I call out, I am a Christian, but that, that discipleship stuff, that's not really something that I'm trained to do or I'm not ready for it. It's what Christians do. To be a Christian is to disciple others. We, we're commanded by it by the Lord himself in Matthew 28. On top of that, it's the logical outflow of being a Christian. And so discipleship is a command we just can't simply push it aside and say, I don't need to do that. I don't have enough time. It's something we have to do. Secondly is that discipleship trusts in God's sovereign work. I'm afraid that we are a people who look for instantaneous results. It is the, the tyranny of our day. How many of us perhaps have led a discipleship group or been in a discipleship group and had the temptation to think, this isn't working. How many of you have led a discipleship group and felt that way, even tempted to think, I'm not seeing change. It's not working, this thing. After perhaps one year of meeting together, and it's so easy to become disheartened. Perhaps we're thinking that way because we don't understand discipleship itself. I've been reading a book by Eugene Peterson called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. He's a pastor and author recently passed away, and he describes this heart this way. He says, it is not difficult in such a world to get a person interested in the message of the gospel. It is terrifically difficult to sustain the interest. Millions of people, people in our culture make decisions for Christ, but there's a dreadful attrition rate. Many claim to have been born again, but the evidence for mature Christian discipleship is slim. In our kind of culture, anything, even news about God, can be sold if it is packaged freshly. But when it loses its novelty, it goes on the garbage heap. There's a great market for religious experience in our world. There is little enthusiasm, 
enthusiasm for the patient acquisition of virtue, little inclination to sign up for a long apprenticeship in what earlier generations of Christians called holiness. I wonder if we have bought into this idea of discipleship. It's a quick fix. We need to see change now. And if we don't, then either your something's wrong with you or something's wrong with me. And we become disheartened. It's no wonder that we give up on people and perhaps ultimately on Jesus himself. Remember, we disciple regardless of fruit. That is something that you must understand if you are leading people is that we are not leading people to gain fruit. We are leading people to obey Christ. Discipleship is first and foremost an obedience to our Savior and Lord. When we say, He is my Lord Jesus Christ, we're saying, He is my Master. He is the one I seek to please. And so often we conflate the idea of fruit is what we want more than even serving of our Lord. But again, if you look at Paul in this logic, logical flow in Romans 10, as well as the command of Matthew 28, never once is there a, hey, you're doing this so that you can have a lot of, quote, disciples. And maybe that's the danger of it all, is that we ultimately want not disciples who follow Christ, but disciples of Sam or of you. And if that's the case, no wonder we're disheartened. A disheartening of a lack of fruit, of seeing change in people, is really, ultimately, if we're honest with ourselves, a disappointment with our own merit, our own work. And that, in and of itself, wars against the gospel, which is all about Christ being the one who merits and works, and we just trust him. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 3.6, I planted... Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. He's talking about essentially discipleship, about the church, about leading people to Christ. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Now, I, being Paul, who's saying this, is saying, I planted. What do you do with a seed? You plant it into the ground. When you plant that seed into the ground, but if Apollos, the next person, the next preacher, the next discipler is coming along and watering it, what is what fruit does Paul see? Nothing. All he did was plant the seed into the ground. But what he trusts is the fact that God is the one who's going to make it grow. That should be the most freeing thing that we can have as people who are leading others to to follow Christ. Is that it's not our work. That means you can't mess up enough to stop God from doing what he's going to do, which is to raise this person up. That is good news. That frees us from, it's not that we become lazy and don't care, but it's, we're not going to mess this person up so badly. There is a place to say, trust God. Even if you see nothing happen, even if you see no change, the seed is planted. It could take decades for the fruit to be grown, but it, God will do the work. There's a story of a person that I encountered. He was telling me a story about his dad. His father, um, he had, he and he was a pastor, and so he had been sharing the gospel with his father, who did not believe in Christ. In fact, completely rejected him for decades. Had been rejecting him over and over and over again. 
And this son would not give up. He just continually shared the gospel with him. Never turned to Christ. When he was 76 years old, he got a phone call. Uh, when the, the father was 76, he got, he, um, the man, the pastor got a phone call from this father. And the father said, my son, I just want to tell you, I've come to believe in Jesus Christ. And the son was just thinking, how, how did that happen? And he said, you know, my landscaper, he was a Christian and he came in and he just said, Hey, told this gospel story and said, do you want to believe in Jesus? And he said, yes, I believe. And the son was like, I've been telling you that for decades. What? For whatever reason, it was just that man. But the seeds were planted six months later, that father died. And the story of, I love that story because that is the story of discipleship. So here's the problem was we tend to think, I need to see fruit. If I don't, then it doesn't work. I'm going to give up. We think about that way with our, our loved ones, maybe our parents who don't know Christ. And we've been telling them for so long, believe in Jesus, trust him. And then you don't see it. And we say, ah, forget it. It's too late. They're never going to believe. They're never going to believe. How dare we do that to the Lord? To actually think that it's in our hands. Are we that skilled in our articulation of the gospel, our power, our strength to believe that, oh, God has to use me in a particular way. And if he doesn't, then he's not going to do the work. What does that say about our view of God? God does the work. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And God could save someone even in a coma with the Lord by his spirit, opening their eyes to the glories of Jesus. That is not as great. That is an equally great miracle as us who are alive and thriving, who've heard the gospel and believe. Both are concurrently miracles. How dare we think that God could not do this miracle of saving someone in a coma or in a last second and yet think that what we did, well, that's lesser of a miracle because we actually know. No, both are miracles. Both require God's supernatural sovereign work of opening our eyes to himself. And I guarantee you, every person in this room, if you believe in Jesus and call on him, it's because God did a miracle in your life. He opened your eyes. He melted your heart. He helped you to see him. Doesn't matter whether you are fully capable, conscious, aware, how old you are, how young you are. That is a miracle. So discipleship, trust in God's sovereign work. Thirdly, discipleship happens in all seasons at all times. If you wait for the right time to disciple other people, you will be waiting until you die. If you wait when you have time or when you're ready, you'll always be waiting. If you're waiting for the time that you're mature enough, you know enough of the Bible, you're more sanctified than you are today, you will be waiting. I always go back to the church in Acts chapter 2. 3,000 people turned to Christ immediately. You know, they didn't all say, you know, we got to go through a three-year discipleship training program and go to seminary and try to figure out be able to read Greek and Hebrew and exegete all the passages well. And they just started. I'm wondering what that discipleship was like. 
it must have been rough. Because, you know, in that group, there were probably people who maybe denied Jesus, drunkards, people who were, you know, just really struggling with addictions. That society, by the way, the Roman society was not a pure society. It was at least as difficult culturally as we live in today. The brokenness that they must have discipled through as leaders and followers, it was real and it was constant. If you wait for the perfect time, availability, season, you will always be waiting. It's important to remember that in the Bible, from Jesus to the New Testament church, there's discipleship going on all times, all seasons, all levels of readiness. And so I really urge you, if you're sitting here thinking, well, you know, I'm not really ready and uh, I just, I'm, I'm always tired, I'm worn. Boy, we need, to, we need this. I need this. We need to be regularly investing into the lives of people and the fruitfulness of, not of the bearing of fruit, but of our own heart in that process is tremendous. Next is that discipleship reflects the beauty of Jesus. Look at what Paul says in verse 15. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Paul is quoting from Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7. In that passage in Isaiah, Isaiah is telling of a future day where Israel is under captivity in Babylon. And he's, the text is saying that there will come a day when God's king, the Messiah is going to come and rescue Israel. And there's going to be a messenger who runs from Babylon and who's going to tell Israel, you are free. You've been set free by the king. Well, discipleship, according to Paul, reflects that picture. Paul uses this verse to describe who? Me and you. We're supposed to be that messenger who's running to people and saying, we've been set free by the king. You're no longer enslaved. You have a life filled with joy waiting for you. So start running. Tell people. Invest. Dream. Imagine. We are preachers of good news. This is not a burden for us. Those who call out understand this. And why do we run? Because, as we all know, when something good happens, you want to tell somebody. It's so hard to keep it in. It's hard to keep in really good news. It burns in your heart. It's the heart of the saved, the heart of the one who calls, the heart of the one who believes. I also love the image. How beautiful are the feet who bring good news. The only beautiful feet I know are on babies. You ever notice that? Like, feet are... Okay, I... I think feet are disgusting. I have to admit, baby feet are really beautiful. Something happens after they start wearing shoes <laughs> and uh, start walking. Because as feet get older, they get hangnails, bunions, bad odor, calluses. There's, they get wider. They get flatter. They get dry. They stink. Okay, enough about feet. I think you get the point. But I'm sorry, feet are not beautiful. 
But I can't help but think, why does Paul use, reflect on this phrase to describe the preacher? And to me, when I think of feet and the Bible, I think of Jesus. I think of Jesus taking the washcloth and putting it around his waist, looking at his disciples, knowing that they're going to abandon him. And he bends down and he looks at their feet. How disgusting. Now you think, our feet are gross? They walked around in sandals without any, you know, there's no sewage there or, I mean, there's no um, toilets or anything like that. The The roads were filled with animal manure and dirt and their feet probably stunk so bad, crusted. And I, I, Okay, you get the point. Jesus bends down, looks at their feet, takes out, they all take off their sandals. And the thing is, this is something that a good host did do. They washed feet, but you had a slave do that or a servant do that. And when Jesus bends down to begin to wash Peter's feet, Peter's just taken aback. He's thinking, Master, Rabbi, you don't do that. You know, only, only lowly people do that, but you're, you're Jesus. And you know the story. Jesus says, you know, if you want a part of me, you want to be with me, I need to do this with you. So then Jesus tells us the response in John 13, 12 through 15. When he had washed their feet, put on his outer garments, resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Jesus and Paul are saying the same thing. If you truly are made clean, saved, then you must do the same for others. If you who once, you and I who once had crusty, dirty, disgusting feet, and that feet is representative just a portion of our whole being, our soul. So whatever disgust the feet is, dirty, is what our souls were like. And when Jesus gave his life and he, his blood was shed on that cross, he not only cleansed physically the feet, he cleanses our souls to make us whole and set us free. To give us joy and delight, not just for a moment, but eternally. If you have been made whole, if this is who you are, you know deep in your soul that how can you not want to do this for other people? How can you not want to take your dirty, disgusting feet and instead become beautiful feet who tell others, who preach the good news? We disciple others because Jesus washed away our sins forever and ever. And he welcomes us into his presence. I hope you're never too busy or too tired, too old or too young, too young in faith, too broken to forget this. That because Jesus washed your feet, so too. You must wash others as well. I want to conclude with this. If you are a, a Wellspring Church member, this is 
I mean, we try to figure out what are the best ways to disciple others. And for us, it's through discipleship groups. And if, you, if you're a Wellspring Church member and you've led discipleship group before and you th- said, well, but I've done that before. I've done that. Results aren't that great. They haven't really, I'm, I'm tired. I need a season of break. I really want to encourage you to sign up to be a discipleship group leader today. We need men and women who are not discipling people because it's a program, but because you understand what Christ has done for you and you need to be beautiful feet for other people. Not perfect, but Christ has cleansed you. We need more discipleship group leaders. We don't have enough. And I know some of you have done it and said, yeah, but I need a break. I've done I get it. There are seasons for that. Don't wait too long. Because I don't think it's a, it's an option for us. It's a command. We have to do this. It's not just something that we say as a nice pithy saying to describe our church. I just really believe this is what Jesus tells us and commands us to do. And it is the primary means by which not only are people going to grow and, and multiply, but ourselves. You know this to be true. Whenever I have taught, preached, discipled, I find that in the in the training and the practice and the working out and the uh, growing and the preparation, I grow to find delight in Jesus. This is a, this is a privilege for me, not just because you are there, but because I get to study God's word and that helps me to grow. So do not think of this as a sacrifice. Think of this as a blessing. So I really want to encourage you. If you have want to, If you're convicted in any way, we need more discipleship group leaders to disciple others. If you want to be discipled, if you want to follow Jesus, go outside, sign up. There'll be a few people, Michael, Angie, Jen Huang, I think is going to be doing that. And go to that, that, those iPads and say, I want to join a discipleship group. I need that. I want to follow Jesus. I want to know who he is. And when you join, have the expectation that it's a part of a process. It might take a year. It might take 10 years. It might take 30 years. Maybe not with the same people. God does. He uses all different people. But he's going to grow you. He's going to lead you to himself. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, I do pray that for all of us who have been saved and who call upon you, believe when you stood around those disciples at that last supper, preparing to wash their feet, you were doing so much more than just simply cleansing their appendages to make them feel physically better. You were showing them that they need to, they need to do this for others. And Lord, as we come to this table, may it not only be a reminder of what you have done for us, may it also be a reminder of what we must do for others. Not because we gain favor from you, but in response to what you have provided. And we so long to be the preachers of good news because in us is welling up that good news so much that we need to tell others. We need to instruct others. We need to lead others. And in doing so, I know, O Lord, you will bless us immensely. 
So as we come to this table, O oh Lord, help us to see that by your spirit, to know that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.